Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in that last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels look to, long to look. The word of the Lord. Today we uh, continue our series in the first epistle of Peter. And uh, we, uh, last Sunday we, we looked at this, I think, a brilliant definition of what a Christian is. We are elect exiles, accepted by God through faith in Christ, and yet we are exiles in this world. There's tension where we are. Now he's going to work it out. The rest of the letter, he's going to take that definition and work it out. This is the framework for the whole letter. He's going to talk about our deep acceptance with God, and he's going to talk about our conflict with the world and how we are to navigate this identity in our lives. Now, today we're looking at the next several verses which were read to you just a minute ago. And this is sort of an opening prayer. And you really have to read this as a prayer. It's a doxology. He's blessing God for what God has done for us. And yet at the same time, Peter is teaching us things about God, things about us, things about the world around us. So let's consider this as a call to hope because at the core of this passage is this idea of a living hope. We've been born again to a living hope, and we are to live in it. So I'd like to consider this hope under roughly three headings. We'll look at it as a living hope in the first few verses. Then in the middle section, we'll see that this is a joyful hope in spite of our trials. And finally, we'll find out that it's an informed hope that we have a grounds for believing and hoping what we do. All right, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God gives us a new life, and this life is given to us freely it's just by His mercy. It's by His grace. He takes His enemies, which are all of us in our sinful state, 
and He makes us His children. This new life, this life that is given to us, is actually His own life. It's God's life. This new life is something that is given to us to make us different. It actually changes who we are. He fathers us. He begets us. He gives us a new birth. And now we're born as His children. Born again. This is the second birth. We're born as His children, and we resemble Him, and we share in His nature. Now, this is what happens. Nothing less than this, nothing less than what I've described, happens to anyone who becomes a believer, anyone who gets converted, anyone who meets Jesus in that kind of personal way. They are transformed into a child of God with a new nature, a new life. And by grace... We receive this life of God that is now ours. Our, our nature is transformed. Scripture calls it regeneration, a new birth. It's a second birth because first we were born as children of Adam, sharing his sinful nature. But secondly, now we are born as children of God, sharing God's nature. Now, it's really important as we will we'll spend most of our time talking about hope but hope is connected to this new life. We're born again into this new hope, into this living hope. Why? Because hope belongs to the life we have from God. We become like God. We share His nature. We share His character. And God is a hopeful God. He is the God of all hope. And so we become people of hope. Now, you've heard the phrase like father, like son, or like mother, like daughter. Children are like their parents by nature. And so my oldest, Elena, loves to write. She loves to read. She loves to write. She likes words. Why? Well, partially because my wife likes to write and read, and she likes words. And so children are like their parents, and Christians are like their father. So this hope we're talking about, this, by the way, living hope, belonging to the life of God, is ours by nature. I want to be very clear that we're not just saying, be a Christian, and then we're going to add something to you. Now we're going to add this virtue of hope to you. There's hopeless Christians and there's hopeful Christians. No. There are only one kind of Christian. It's a person who shares in the life of God, and the life of God brings a living hope into you. That's just part of who you are. This new life, and thus a new hope, are released to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Son of God had to die for us to become children of God. He had to rise from the dead so that through His resurrection He could reverse Adam's sin and restore life to us. We can only be born again because Jesus rose again. Notice that Peter refers to God as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's our Father, but He's our Father because He is Jesus' Father. And because Jesus rose from the dead, now the fatherhood of God is given to all who are in Christ. So He's our Father because of Jesus. He became our Father because His Son came to die and rise for His children. And so the Holy Spirit takes this new life, this new life that flows from the empty tomb, and He directs it into our hearts, making us new creation, 
and causing us to be born again. Now, having experienced this new birth, we now have a new life. And this new life, this divine life, will inevitably lead to the full possession of all its benefits. Once God is finished with all that He wants to do, we will experience this new life to its fullest extent. You see, the new birth is not actually the end. It's just the beginning. So when you become a new creature, you will grow into all the benefits that God has for you, that Jesus earned for you on the cross and in the empty tomb. Now, this is what Peter means by saying that we have been born again into a living hope. A living hope. It's not an empty hope. It's a vital hope. It's a hope that grows, that changes, that brings you deeper into this new reality of life in God. Our hope is the confidence that the life God gave us at conversion will go on and will be fully experienced in glory. What we're actually hoping for is that all that God has promised to us will come true. We have started now. We have His life. It's been given to us by grace. But this life will become fuller and deeper until eventually, in glory, it will just explode and you'll have all of it forever. And that's what he means by a living hope. Hope that is connected to the life of God. This life that's being worked into this, this country of death that we live in. It's not an empty hope. It's not like a hope that many of us have that we hope something might happen. It's a hope, it's a confidence that is based on what God said and what God has already done in your life. Much like Israel was rescued from Egypt and then given a new life as a people, their hope was that they would fully experience all that God promised to them once they took possession of the land. Now, this is the analogy, the imagery that we have. And by the way, Peter is going to again and again apply Old Testament imagery and Old Testament pro promises to the church. You can't understand this letter unless you also understand the Old Testament. So Peter is taking this idea that God rescued his people from slavery. So that's new life. He rescued them. They left. They're not in Egypt anymore. But as they are wandering in the wilderness, there is a promise that is yet to be fulfilled. The life that was given to them will blossom. It will be fuller. It will be deeper. And so they're wandering in hope that God will do what God said He would do. And so this idea of inheritance, which is Israel's land of flowing with milk and honey, as we read from Exodus, this is the imagery that he's using for us because we too are given an inheritance. That's the future expression of God's life. That's the future expression of his glory. So this inheritance is our hope. And it is described in verses 4 and 5 as an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So as we live in this world as God's elect exiles, 
We live in hope, in confidence, of receiving an inheritance that is ours by virtue of having been made God's children. Gave us a new birth. We're in his family. Everything that's his is now ours. We are co-heirs with Christ. Everything Christ has is now shared with us. But we haven't come into the full possession of it yet. Just like Israelites, we're waiting. So we live in that tension. That's hope. That's what hope is. Our future as God's children is that full experience of God's life. And when his salvation is complete, nothing pertaining to death will remain. So notice, this is all about life and death. This new birth, God's life comes into us. It comes into this old creation. And eventually, death will be completely pushed out and destroyed. There won't be any death. And no effects of death will be in his creation. No sin. So Peter then describes our inheritance as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. To paraphrase it, our future will be untouched by death, unstained by evil, and unimpaired by time. Or to put it yet another way, our future will be death-proof, sin-proof, and time-proof. This is what he has for us. And he will give it to us because he's already given to us his life. We're on the way. We're, we're in that stream of life. And it's going to happen because he will do it. This hope, it's, it's not a wish. It's not a dream. It's not a maybe. It's a, it's a confident expectation of what God will do. What he's already begun, he will finish. Of course he will. Who can stand against God? Who can thwart his purposes? He will do everything he said he will do. And everything that he started in your life, Anything that you have experienced pertaining to his life that's been given to you by grace will be full and deep and will blossom in glory. And that is your inheritance. That is exactly what your hope is about. And guess what? It's kept for you. <laughs> Nobody's going to touch it. He's keeping it for you. Whatever is happening in your life right now, your inheritance is secure because you're never going to stop being his kid. And you will get your inheritance. He's keeping your inheritance for you in heaven, completely protected. And he's guarding you for the inheritance. With all the power of God, he is protecting you. This is military language. He is protecting you so you will come into the full possession of your inheritance. That's hope. It's a living hope. It's not, not the kind of hope that some of us wish we had. This is a living hope tied in with the life of God, His promises that will come true, His power on our side. This will happen. Okay, that's the living hope. Now let me talk about the middle verses here. It's a joyful hope. Verses 6 through 9 describe that this hope as it encounters trials in life, produces joy. And Peter is struggling to define this kind of joy. But this is his basic equation. Living hope 
plus various trials equals rejoicing. Live in hope plus various trials equals rejoicing. Now, what are these various trials? Before we get to joy, which we'll spend most of our time on, what are these various trials and why are we grieved by them? A trial is any kind of breach of shalom. It's anything that is not the way it's supposed to be. Any experience of exile is a trial. Now, there are different kinds of trials. Illness, for example, is when your body is not functioning the way it's supposed to be. That's a trial. Poverty is when economy is not working as designed by God, whether it's personally to you, your household, or on a cultural societal level. Divorce is when marriage is not the way it is supposed to be. Infertility, mental illness, struggles at work, interpersonal conflict, addiction, cancer, car accidents, flooding. These are all examples of what I call exilic dissonance. Exilic dissonance, meaning things are not the way they're supposed to be. And so you remember, I'm in exile, broken world, broken people, broken hearts. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. So whenever you feel that tension, that's a trial. Now, there's various degrees. Some of these things are just mildly annoying, and you kind of just get through it. Some of these are difficult, long things that produce a lot of pain, a lot of anguish. This world isn't right, and our hearts aren't right. And trials are just specific experiences of the tension between God and the world. Everybody knows trials. Everybody's been in a trial. Many of you are in significant trials right now. I came back from a sabbatical, and I see that several people are hurting. There's just deep pain for various reasons. There are various trials. There's different shapes that these trials can take. There's different kinds of suffering. There's different kind of affliction. But all of us are familiar with it. And yet Peter says, when that living hope encounters a trial of whatever kind, it results in rejoicing. So now we get to a very practical question. And lest I be accused of just saying words and talking religious language that doesn't actually even matter. You know, somebody said a pastor is invisible six days and incomprehensible on the seventh. So <laughs> I'd like to be comprehensible <laughs> to you today. I'd like to make this very practical, and yet it's going to be very spiritual. <laughs> because we're dealing with these deep realities of God's life into your existence, living hope, encountering trials, and producing joy. So I thought, of, okay, let me come up with a list of things from this text, and I'm going to actually keep your Bibles open if you, if you can, because we're going to go verse by verse, and I'm going to give you five things that if you remember one of them, that should put a smile on your face even though you are in the midst of a trial. Okay, so I'm talking about specific things that if you think about it, it will make you rejoice in the midst of a difficult circumstance in your life. 
I usually cook, cook a Sunday dinner for you, but today I'm making your lunches for the week, okay? It's five, there are five things. I don't have time to spend a lot of it on each of these. I'll explain it as clearly as I can. They come from the text, but I want to encourage you, take each of these reasons to rejoice in trial and then meditate on that. Meditate on that verse. Meditate on, on that truth every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Saturday, you're on your own. But let me tell you, if you've been meditating on these verses, you will come up with the sixth reason to rejoice on Saturday. Okay? So let's, let's get through them. And I hope to be very clear, but I'm not going to explain too much because I want you to do the work as well. Okay. Verse 6. In verse 6, we learn that suffering accentuates your future glory. Suffering accentuates, it highlights, it puts an emphasis on your future glory. Verse 6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Thomas Watson said that affliction may be lasting, but it is not everlasting. Anything difficult we experience in this life is temporary. It is for a little while. It grieves us, yes, it grieves us, it hurts us, but it only grieves us for a brief time. And it gives us an opportunity to consider the magnitude of our future glory. The temporary nature of our trials highlights the eternal nature of our inheritance. Light are the pains that nature brings, how short our sorrows are, when with eternal future things, the present we compare. When you spend a day in the hospital, think about the eternity of health that is promised to you. That does put a smile on your face. When you spend six months unemployed, think about the eternity of meaningful, fruitful, enjoyable work that awaits you. When you experience years of injustice and persecution, think about the eternity of God's perfect rule that is your destiny. I don't say this lightly, but even chronic struggles even lifelong afflictions are but a moment compared with eternity. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So when you're in the midst of a trial, remember that this trial is for a moment, it's just for a little while, and what God is promising to you is an eternal happiness, is an eternal harmony, an eternal perfection. Two, suffering authenticates our faith. Suffering authenticates our faith. In verse 7, we focus on the first part of verse 7 so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Now, the image here is, is a familiar biblical image of gold being tested by fire, being refined, being purified by high temperature. Our faith is tested by trials, and it is proven to be genuine. You don't know if your faith is real until it's challenged. You can't tell, if you really believe, until it's challenged, until you're in a trial, and you're pushed, and you're tempted, and you're hurting, and then you say, now I know it's real. This feeling, like an exile in this world, when you feel that there's tension, this is not the way it should be, is a confirmation that you are elect of God. Suffering burns off other identities, and it exposes your true identity in Christ. Suffering tears down idols, and it elevates your true God. It removes sin, and it reveals faith. Think about that. Does that make you happy? Yes, I'm hurting, I'm grieved by my trial, but my trial just proved to me that I'm a real Christian, that I'm elect of God. It's a, it's a gift that God gives me. Now, it's not a good sign if a professing Christian feels at home in this world. Our disillusionment with this world, which happens during trials, is evidence that we belong to another world, that we've not come into our inheritance yet. There's a story told about an American missionary returning home after several decades of a very difficult but faithful service overseas. And as it happens, he and his wife were coming back on the same ship that president, former president at the time, Teddy Roosevelt, was coming from his widely publicized safari. When the ship docked in New York, Roosevelt was greeted by a cheering crowd. Actually, people lined up and, and followed him because their favorite president, their leader, has returned home. But no one greeted or cheered for this missionary couple. And the missionary felt bitterness rise in, in his heart. He prayed, Lord, I served you faithfully for many years. I sacrificed so much for you and for your work, for your church, and not even one person is here to welcome me home. Immediately the Lord responded, Ah, but you're not home yet. Whenever you feel like I've arrived home, this is home, there should be something in your heart saying, hold on a minute. <laughs> I'm supposed to be feel, feeling like I'm an exile here. I'm, I don't belong here. Something is wrong. There's dissonance here. Whenever you feel that, it's a reminder that you haven't come into your full inheritance yet. And thinking about your inheritance, thinking about home, should make you smile. Thirdly, suffering accumulates glory for God. It accentuates our future glory. It authenticates our faith. But it also accumulates glory for God. This is the second part of verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result... So when it's all said and done, 
your tested faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is, I mean, I think an incredible idea here. Every trial that reveals your faith, your real faith, adds to the glory God is going to receive when Jesus returns. I, do, you, do you get what I'm saying? That every time you suffer and your faith is revealed to be genuine, every trial like that adds to the glory that God will receive when Jesus returns. So when you're suffering, holding on to the living hope, yet you're grieved by your trials, when you're rejoicing, you are storing up, you are piling up, you are building up, you're gathering up, you're loading up God's glory. How meaningful is our suffering? Can't get any more meaningful than this. I'm an active participant as I suffer in accumulating more glory and more honor and more praise for my God. 2 Thessalonians 1.10 says that when Jesus returns, he will be glorified in his saints, in you, in me. He'll be glorified in us. And he will be marveled at among all who believe. At the revelation of Jesus Christ, all praise and glory and honor will be given to him. To him who, who saved you and who sustained you through your various trials. To him who rescued you and then he kept you till the end. Who guarded your faith for your salvation. Who kept your inheritance in heaven for you. Who had sufficient grace for every kind of trial. Who never faltered. Who never broke his promise. Who never abandoned you. This is the God that we will be marveling at. And His glory will be greater because you rejoiced in your suffering. Hallelujah. This whole section we're looking at, this whole 3 through 12, that whole section we're looking at, is one sentence. And it is a prayer. And it is a doxology. It's a praise. All these subordinate clauses talking about trials and, and hope and angels and Old Testament prophets, they're all meant to qualify the main clause, which is, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> or somebody translated as, look at what God did. <laughs> look at what our Father did. And so this doxology that begins here prepares us for an even greater glory that will be revealed when our suffering is over. So if you're suffering right now, you're hurting right now, today, this hour, you get to pile up more glory for your God. And all will be revealed and we will marvel at Him. We'll marvel at how He's dealt with you and we'll praise Him for it. Number four, suffering awakens us. It awakens our sense of Christ's presence. Suffering awakens our sense of Christ's presence. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. When you are afflicted, your spiritual senses come alive. I'd like to get a couple amens to this because you have experienced that. I know you have. You're going about your life, and you're sort of living in this world of things you can touch and see and taste. And then a trial comes, and your hand reaches for something you can't grasp. Your hand reaches into the spiritual realm, and you realize that Christ is just as real as all the other things in your life, maybe even more so. Your faith in the invisible becomes stronger in trials. Even though you can't see Jesus, you are now convinced that he is there with you. In a very real sense, he is present. And you love him because he's always with you. He's there in every storm. He is there every time you find yourself in the furnace of affliction. He's with you in every battle. But the way you learn that is through trials, through having your spiritual senses awakened to that reality. That's four. And five, suffering alerts us to our destination. Suffering alerts us to our destination. Verse nine, obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of your souls. As you're being tried, as you're being tempted, as you're being afflicted, as you rejoice in it, as you hold on to the living hope that God gave you, you are moving towards the outcome of your faith. This faith now will result in the full salvation, full life of God. You will obtain it, but now you are moving closer and closer to it. Trials are like rumble strips alerting us that we need to slow down because the expressway is about to end. You're close now, and it alerts you. You know one of those that they put them across the road. I'm not talking about when you're veering off the road. That's a different story. My analogy doesn't work with, with that. But they put some of those across the road. So when you need to slow down by a toll booth or the expressway ends, it reminds you that you're close. You're close to your destination. Slow down. You're almost done with this journey. Through many dangerous toils and snares, I have already come. This grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Tis grace now that's bringing you through this trial, but the same grace will bring you completely home, and you will obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Corey Ten Boom said, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away your ticket and jump off. You sit still and you trust the engineer. You trust that the Lord will bring you out of the tunnel and to your destination. Now, these are the five reasons I think there are real reasons. I think there are reasons that can actually produce a smile on your face in the midst of a trial. 
take each one of them, spend a day meditating on that verse, on that reason, and see what it will do for your suffering. Now, if you didn't take careful notes, all of this is posted on our website. You get the full manuscript and all the crazy things that I planned to say and didn't, okay? And you go back to it and you meditate on the text and see what you come up with on Saturday. So these reasons, we apply them, we connect the living hope with trials, and we come up with rejoicing. And Peter calls this kind of joy inexpressible and filled with glory. Is it a good description? Well, in a sense, yes, because you can't really describe it. But in another sense, it just tells us that it's mysterious, that it's paradoxical, that something different is going on with this kind of joy. It is mixed with grief. We are told that we are grieved by our trials. You're not, you're not supposed to just ignore the pain or ignore the hardship you're going through. And yet, while mixed with grief, this joy, this supernatural joy, does not lose its properties, much like the incarnation of Christ. Fully God, fully human, full divine properties, full human properties. The same way here, grief and joy are mixed together, but they're not really mixed because they have remained grief and joy. And that's why this mysterious, paradoxical joy is inexpressible, and yet it is filled with glory. It's filled with God's life. It's part of this divine nature that you've been given by the Holy Spirit, and that's why our hope is a joyful hope. I only have a few minutes left, but we need to talk about where this hope rests. What informs this hope? How do we know these things are true? How can we remember those truths and be encouraged by them? How can we trust them? Now look at verses 10, 11, and 12. Concerning this salvation, all that God has done for us, all that God will do, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The Holy Spirit gave us this new life through regeneration, and then he gives us new truth that informs our hope through revelation. Now, what is this truth? It is the gospel. The truth in question the thing that was prophesied, the thing that is being preached, the thing that the angels long to look into is the gospel itself. And Peter summarizes it as the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. This message of the death and the resurrection of Jesus informs our hope. So our hope isn't empty. It's vital, it's living, it's full because it is based on this message of what Jesus has done for us. Now, this message is not just Peter's message. It's not just the apostolic message. It's not just the New Testament message. The Old Testament prophecies were made about Jesus coming, about Jesus suffering, about Jesus rising from the dead. But the prophets who prophesied it 
Though they did it through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit moved through them, spoke through them, just like he did with the New Testament writers. They were hazy on a lot of details, and they were wondering how it's all going to come together. In fact, their message, the Old Testament message, is more valuable to us today because the grace that they try to understand is now ours through Christ. We already got it. Whatever they were promising, whatever they were predicting, we got it now, and we understand those prophecies much better. And then they realized that they were serving us more than they were serving themselves. They couldn't understand all that we were going to understand now having the gospel, now that Jesus has come, that Jesus died and rose again. Now the same message, this gospel message, is proclaimed now clearly through the gospel preaching in the church by the Holy Spirit. Now this is the privileged position we are all in right now. We have the clear justification for our hope. It's clear. It's been revealed to us. The Old Testament prophets were guessing at some details. But to us, it's been made clear. As Jesus died and rose to give us life, so we will never lose this life. We now know it. As Jesus suffered and was glorified, we suffer in expectation of glory. The gospel is the foundation and fuel of our hope. And the Spirit keeps preaching it to our hearts, lest we get discouraged and lose sight of our inheritance. He keeps preaching it to us. Karen Jobes, one of the commentators I'm using for this series, said that we are historically and cosmically privileged. You want to feel a little better about yourself this morning? You are historically and cosmically privileged. Historically, because we know more than the Old Testament prophets. Cosmically, because angels long to look into the things we know and experience. Now, I know a lot of you pretty well. And none of you are angels, let me tell you. (laughs) But don't take it negatively. It's a compliment of sorts. Because you, certain things in your life, are better than what the angels have. And things that the angels wish they could connect to, wish they could experience. Angels long to look into the things that you know and have experienced. Angels listen to gospel preaching. I'm not just preaching to you. Because the angels want to understand what I understand. They want to experience what I have experienced. What we know to be so clear in the gospel. Now, they know God. But they only know him as creator. And they don't know him as a father. They know him as king. But they don't know him as a redeemer. They know him as the origin of all life. But they don't know him as the giver of new birth. Angels don't go through trials and get to pile up glory for God. They, don't, they can't do that. They don't live in the same reality that we live in as exiles that see every exilic dissonance as proof of our election. 
They don't have the same kind of living, joyful, informed hope that we do. And so they listen to our preaching, and they watch our lives unfold, and they marvel at it, and they think it's wonderful, and they're trying to understand how God is going to perform and accomplish and fully complete this redemption for his people. They're wondering about that. We know, and we have experienced it. And this inheritance that has been prepared for us will be ours, and we know what it is. So why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for we shall again praise him, our salvation and our God.